Please open your Bibles this morning to the book of Hebrews. We are starting a new series. We're not going to jump into it all um, all at once. We're going to dip our feet in. And that's the purpose of this message this morning, to introduce us to the book of Hebrews that I hope we will spend a great and detailed amount of time in going through next year. I've called this message a foreshadowing of Christ. And the book of Hebrews is wonderful because it is a sermon in writing. It is meant to encourage wavering believers of the assurance of faith in Christ. He asks the question, there is no going back. Can we go back? Can we go back to the law and to our old religions? No, there is no going back. But why would you even want to? Commenter writes this about Hebrews. It throbs with an awareness of the privilege and the cost of discipleship. It is a sensitive pastoral response to the staggering faith of tired individuals who were in danger of relinquishing their Christian commitment. It seeks to strengthen them in the face of new crisis so that they may stand firm in their faith. Let me ask you a question. Let's illustrate this. How do you have a relationship with someone? Well, a good start is you get to know them, right? We say we have a relationship with Christ. That's true. We do. But I'm sometimes hesitant when somebody says that because intrinsically in a relationship, there is the, the duty to get to know that person as well as possible. If I get to know my wife over the years, I know what she likes. I know what she dislikes. I know her, her habits. I know when she's sad, when she's happy, when she's contemplating. I know that because um, I experience life. She's there. I can see her. I can talk to her. That's not necessarily true with Christ. We do experience our faith. It's real. The Spirit is with us. But we can't look to Christ and, and ask him questions. How do we know who he is so that we can have a relationship with him? Well, the Bible says that about, himself, uh, about itself. We get to know God because of what he has revealed to us about himself. Hebrews is written in a very complex form of Greek. It uses a lot of uh, words that's not used anywhere else. It uses a lot of grammar and, and sentence structure that's um, not found anywhere else. In John, conversely, it's one of the, the easiest Greek forms to read. I think that that's not a coincidence. John and 1 John, we, we build a frame. If we're, if we're carving or, or not carving, uh, if we're building something, let's say we're building um, a beautiful uh, rocking chair, okay? It would, be, it would be the wood. It would be the raw wood, and we, and we place it, and we build the frame, Romans, what a great, um, thick, meaty, doctrinal book. It teaches us about salvation. It teaches us about 
redemption in Christ. It teaches us about uh, the cross and and the, um, uh, all, all these things. And we and we and we polish the wood and we and we um, treat it and we put um, everything uh, on it to you know we we stuff the cushion and we we decorate it. Hebrews would be the embroidery on the wood, the minute, the details that, that, that fill out the, the beauty. Hebrews is, is a book that, to say we know Christ, we must read Hebrews. <laughs> As a church, we're going to do that. There's a few... Um, overarching things that will help us when we explore this book in the new year. You see, a big problem with wavering faith is that I think we might not know Christ as well as we need to. It's not an emotional thing. It's not an experiential thing. I think... A wavering faith comes from a lack of knowledge. Do we know Christ in the fullest sense, or do we only know what we want to know about him? The theme of Hebrews. Let's jump. I'm going to take from selected passages Hebrews 13. It's right at the end of the book, and it gives us some indication of the theme and the purpose and the recipient uh, of Hebrews, and I beseech you, brethren, suffer not the word of exhortation, for I have written a letter unto you in few words. In other words, I've written this as concisely as possible. Be patient with it, bear it, apply it, heed it. Know that your brother Timothy is set at liberty, with whom, if he comes shortly, I will see you. Salute all them that rule over you and the saints. They of Italy salute you. There's an indication that Paul wrote this letter, but unlike many of his other letters, there's no, um, there's no signature, which is at the front of the letter. So we're not sure. Many seem to think that it was Paul, and there's a good case for that. Because of the, the um, temple imagery and the, and the references to the priests and sacrificial system, this would have been written most likely before the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. But Nero started a persecution of the Christian people in 62 AD, and they, they scattered, they fled uh, Rome and Italy, and they, uh, they went elsewhere. It says that from Italy, in other words, those that are originally from Italy, so Paul wrote it to Jewish believers, people that would have known the faith intrinsically. And in face of these insurmountable uh, circumstances, they said, wouldn't it be better just to go back to Judaism, just to follow the law of Moses? Wouldn't that be an option? <laughs> and he writes this almost urgent uh, letter to strengthen their faith. So firstly, we see the supremacy of Christ in Hebrews. I'm going to jump back to chapter 1 now, 
chapter 1 of Hebrews, verse 1 to 3. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. So in other words, um, in God's timing, he delivered some revelation here and some about to this prophet, and Isaiah got some, and Daniel got the 70 weeks, and um, throughout the Old Testament history, God slowly revealed um, uh, his plan. In verse 2, and listen to the supremacy of Christ. This is the first three verses of this book. Hath in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the world, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and the upholding of things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. We think about Christ in that way on a daily basis. Hebrews is going to take us on a spiral path and is going to continuously center us on the supremacy of Christ. So where is he now in, in the flesh and in, in glory? He's sitting at the right hand of the Father. He sent his spirit that emanates from the Father and the Son to be with us here now and to be in us if we are believers. Hebrews speaks about the culminating revelation of God. In other words, the cross isn't an isolated incident. The Bible isn't just a segmentation of truths and teachings. It tells a unified, uh, complete story in all its parts. And that is wonderfully explained in the book of Hebrews. In two other instances in the book of Acts, people recall the Jewish history from the beginning all the way through Moses and Abraham and the kings. And they, in the first instance, Stephen preaches. In the second instance, Paul preaches. And in both instances, the purpose of, of recalling all of the Jewish history was to lead them to a gospel message, to point them to Christ and in some aspect of salvation in Christ. So there's a culmination of, of revelation that ends with Christ. In Genesis, for example, let's look at, at Genesis 3. When I read this the first time many years ago, I was, I was speechless. <laughs> I was dumbstruck that from the very beginning, Genesis 3, we hear of the coming of Christ. Did you know that? Who knew that? Who knew that Genesis speaks of Christ? Let's read it. Verse 14. And the Lord said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field, and upon the belly shalt thou go, thus shalt thou eat of the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between you and the women and between thy seed and her seed, singular, he shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Verse 14 speaks of 
a wounded savior that will crush sin. I want to read a little bit on, actually. The Lord kills an animal. He sacrifices the first sacrifice, the Lord himself. They were naked. They were shamed. In other words, their nakedness was representative of their broken bond with Christ, of, of God, because they hid themselves. And so to temporarily restore that relationship to that they would come out of hiding, he sacrifices animal and the Lord made clothes for them. Verse 21, um, and Adam called his wife Eve because the mother of all living, and Adam also and for his wife did the Lord make coats of skins and clothe them. The purpose of the sacrifice, as we will read in Hebrews, is exactly that, atonement, to bridge that gap somehow. You know, it goes on in verse, in chapter 12, the Lord promises blessings through uh, his line to all the world. In other words, salvation um, in chapter 12. In chapter 22, the promised son and the, uh, and the, and the God-provided sacrifice. In chapter 49, Jacob prophesies um, a king that will restore the world and rule over all the world. This is just in Genesis. So we see this this culminating revelation. And we're going to explore that in wonderful detail in Hebrews. And thirdly, exposition and encouragement. So the interesting thing about Hebrews is not written as a letter, it's written as a sermon. We see areas of exposition, explanation in other words, leading into encouragement and warning and application and then some more explanation and some more encouragement and warning and application. That's what uh, I try to do every Sunday. <laughs> no, this is, this is information that, um, that is applied in verse... Uh, Chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. Some of the warnings, for example, in chapter 10, a warning of willful sin. In chapter 5, a warning of spiritual immaturity. And in chapter 2, from the verse I just read, it's a warning against the neglect of Spending time in Scripture, in, it says, to know and to hear. A warning against the neglect of Scripture. All these things are packaged in an overarching illustration. The illustration of the priest, of the sacrifice, and the temple. In fact, it's more than an illustration. It's a foreshadowing of Christ. It was always looking ahead. You want to go back to that? It doesn't work that way. It's the verse references that I mentioned in the previous point are written there. 
if you want to look at that further. But a priest, what exactly is a priest? We, we, we need to, have you ever asked yourself that? What is a priest? Well, he's the guy that does the stuff in the temple. What does he do? Sacrifices. Why? Um, what about the temple? Um, <laughs> what exactly is a priest again? Here's an example. Psalm 110, verse 4. Psalm 110, verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews actually quotes a lot from Psalms. The majority, and I think it's so apt. Isn't the Psalms a worshipful meditation of all of Jewish history and the, the Old Testament? We read about this, this priestly order, for example, in Hebrews 5 and again in Hebrews 7, where he explains it. You don't have to turn there. We're going to cover all of this in detail. Hebrews 7, verse 11. If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under uh, it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise up after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron. If you're scratching your head, we're going to know Christ better. <laughs> who, who was this guy? Why does it matter that Christ needs to be a priest? Why does it matter that he needs to come from this guy and not... Aaron, <laughs> we read that this was a king as well, the king of Salem, which would later be known as Jerusalem. There was this mysterious person in Genesis called Melchizedek, and he was a kingly priest. He was a king priest. Later we read that David was also considered a priest that actually the office of a priest was only ever delegated to the Levites, but it's, it's always been a kingly duty. Maybe we don't know Christ as well as we thought. I'm looking forward to studying Hebrews with you. Here's a small outline as the writer of Hebrews expands on this priestly illustration throughout the rest of the book. The character of a priest. Chapter 3 to 5 talks about um, the, the need for compassion, the need for faithfulness, the need for sinlessness in a high priest. The office of a priest, so that's from chapter 6 and 7. It talks about the, the intermediary duty of a priest. His purpose was to stand between the people and God so that he can offer a sacrifice for our sins. It also talks about the kingly authority of a priest and that those two offices are actually one and the same thing in Christ. The ministry of a priest from chapter 8 to 10 
the duties that our high priest accomplished and the one and final sacrifice and the temple, <laughs> all of those things embodied in Christ, foreshadowed by these things. And then verse 11 and onwards, he then applies it. Persevere in your faith. So how do we prepare our hearts to read Hebrews? We're going to start from chapter 1 early next year. Maybe take this time to read it. How do we prepare our hearts to read Hebrews? I want us to leave some of the presuppositions we have about Christ at the door. If you have ever doubted your faith for whatever reason, maybe the answer is to refocus and relearn and re-examine how we view Christ. Can I read a few verses from chapter 12? So we won't explain all of this. Just listen to it and consider it as we prepare our hearts to read Hebrews. From verse 18, Hebrews chapter 12 from verse 18. For you are not come unto the mount that might be touched and that burned with fire, nor unto blackness and darkness the tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of the words, which voice they that heard entreated that the word should not be spoken to them any more. In other words, Moses and the law and the mountain where they received it and the people that rejected it. For they could not endure that which was commanded and if so much um, as a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned or th thrust through with a dart. <laughs> No one could keep it. That was never the point of it anyway, to keep it. So terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. Who will stand before between me and this great God? I am, I am ruined. <laughs> I fear and quake. But you are not come unto the mountain, Zion. And unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, but you are come, sorry, and the immutable company of angels, innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly, the church of the firstborn, which is written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. See that you refuse not him that speaketh, for if they escape not, who refused him that spake on earth? Much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven whose voice then shook the earth, but now he hath promised, 
saying, yet once more, I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. And this word, yet once more, signifieth the removing of those things that are shaken, as the things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, we received a kingdom that cannot be moved. Let us have grace, whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. We are going to look at that. This is not a past tense verse. I want us to see Christ in a new light. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we thank you that we can know you through your word. That through Christ, who has died on the cross for our sins, who was raised again, now intercedes at the right hand, your right hand. We thank you that we can even have the privilege to raise our voices up in prayer. That we actually deserve none of it and we are entitled to none of it. But your grace and your love and your goodness, you have decreed it. You have made a way. Lord, we we humble ourselves in front of these truths. We pray that we may not be arrogant and prideful, but to have a relationship with you on your terms, not our own. We thank you now, Lord, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.